hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcast. And also interviews with comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folk. And now, here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark... Persia. Mark Hershon. Hello, friend. Mark Hershon here for yet another edition, the 350th installment, in fact, of Suckatash the Comedy Soundcast Soundcast. Later this month, we'll be celebrating hitting our 12th anniversary of bringing you clips from mostly comedy soundcasts and interviews with some of those soundcasters, some comedians, and some other showbiz folk, as our esteemed booth announcer Bill Haywatt is fond of saying. That anniversary show will be fun. It'll be me and my switching off with me every other week co-host Tyson Saner on the show together. That's right, together, along with a special guest surprise. That show is going to be drop on Tuesday, April 25th, so mark your calendars. Speaking of Tyson, if you missed last week's episode 349, you missed his special One for the Kids installment featuring clips from Wow in the World, TDR Now Travel Podcast, and Story Pirates. With a lot of kids on spring break this week or next, depending on your school district, grab that episode and see if there isn't a show or two in that bunch that might make some good road trip filler if you're heading out with those little ankle biters. I don't have clips for you this week, but instead, it's a Succotash Chats episode featuring my visit with an old friend of mine who doesn't have a podcast. He headed up a sketch comedy group in North Hollywood called Fries on the Side that I got involved with way back, uh, God, 20 years ago. And we get into that quite a bit. He's acted in TV and movies and commercials for quite a while, but then also very much got into computers and technology and programming and well we talk about how he made his choice to move away from the hollywood thing this episode is brought to you by our long-running sponsor henderson's pants and because they don't pay us nothing when they told us they were going to be advertising their new artificial intelligence trousers we figured we'd lost enough money with this non-paying turkey so we've created the first henderson's pants ad completely put together by ai that's right artificial intelligence the script was written by ChatGPT. The AI version of Bill Haywatt reading was provided by the Natural Reading app. And some 8-bit computer music by Dream Protocol finished off the whole thing. So then we then smushed it all together and voila, history was made. And here it is, the first fully AI-driven commercial for Henderson's Pants, followed immediately by my chat with Shane Elliott. Hello, friends, Bill Haywatt here, and I'm excited to introduce you to the future of fashion, brought to you exclusively by Henderson's Pants. Get ready for the revolutionary Henderson's AI trousers, the first pants completely designed by artificial intelligence. That's right, folks. Our advanced AI system analyzed millions of data points, fashion trends, and comfort needs to create the perfect pair of trousers. Not only do they look fantastic, but they also come with three incredible benefits you won't find in any other slacks. Adaptive fit technology. Say goodbye to uncomfortable waistbands and tight pockets. 
the AI trousers feature a cutting-edge fabric that adjusts seamlessly to your body shape, providing a perfect fit, no matter your size or how much you've indulged at that buffet. The AI trousers boast an intelligent temperature control system. These pants monitor your body temperature and adjust their breathability and insulation to keep you comfortable in any climate. Hot summer day? No problem. Freezing winter? Bring it on. And finally, the stain-repellent nano-coating. Spill your coffee? Drop ketchup on your lap? Fear not. With the AI trousers, liquids and stains simply roll off, keeping your pants looking pristine all day long. Originally designed for the busy commuter, who needs a versatile, comfortable pair of pants that can handle the daily hustle and bustle. The high-powered executive, who wants to make an impression in the boardroom while enjoying unmatched comfort and style. And the eco-conscious fashionista, who values sustainable, ethically produced clothing without sacrificing aesthetics or functionality. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to your nearest Henderson's retailer to grab a pair of AI trousers today. Remember, with Henderson's pants, you're not just wearing trousers, you're wearing a piece of history, and now, the future, since 1428. And now back to Succotash. Joining us for Succotash today is an old friend, Shane Elliott. Shane Elliott, first time on the podcast, probably last interview before we go on hiatus. Welcome to Succotash. Thank you. Longtime listener, first time <laughs> guest. <laughs> uh, Shane does not have a podcast, uh, oh, yeah, but that's, that's a, you're probably the only last person in America not to have a, not to right. have a podcast. Yeah. But uh, Shane and I go go way back. Uh, I was in a sketch comedy troupe that uh, Shane had uh, really been sort of the 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 flag bearer and creator of uh, mm. back in North Hollywood called Fries on the Side. Yeah, North Hollywood is, as we all know, huge hot, hot huge bed. bed for for sketch comedy. Right? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's just that's what it's known for. It's not known for anything else. <laughs> there's no other entertainment field that north hollywood is known for it's just sketch comedy <laughs> but but uh it was uh, quite an experience i mean that group oh, was yeah. uh lasted for it was started before i joined and last lasted long after i i'd moved out of los angeles so what was it 10 years eight years eight, eight years. years and the last i'll be honest the last two years i was not i wasn't that into it you know when it when it got going it was the reason, well, did you, didn't you help come up with the name? Uh, no, it had, it had the name when I first uh, found out about it, oh, it did. Um, from Carla. Carla mm -hmm. used to hang out at the coffee place. I hung out. She said, Oh, you got to come check out this group. So I came to see a show and you guys were still doing the, the show with uh, scripts in hand mm -hmm. at the time. So I said, you know, there's a way to probably rig up a teleprompter system <laughs> to do this. Yeah. You're like, do you guys, you've guys heard about computers. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I work in the industry. I should have figured that out, but you're right. Um, but, it, but it was, it was the, if I remember the first six to eight months of the teleprompter system, that was some of the, the better times during the show, because, because we had two TVs, I think they were tube TVs. They weren't yeah. even flat screen yeah. and they were just completely jury rigged. And they would invariably go down during the show. We would end up having to improvise. Yeah. Yeah. They were sketches. Yeah. They were my leftover. You know, I'd replaced all the televisions in my house with normal ones. And then I was like, well, I've got these two leftover CRTs, right? Uh, <laughs> let me just haul these down, these 40 pound blocks of metal and plastic. <laughs> and, um, and we just, oh my gosh. I mean, getting that stuff in and out. I think we eventually stored them there, but 
you know, we set them up and then I ran these long RGB cables up the side of the theater to a small, like crappy laptop. Yeah. <laughs> it was not exactly, uh, we, we finally did better. We replaced those, but, um, I like yeah. to feel, I like to feel we were pioneers. Yeah. Yeah. We were, well, we were like retro pioneers, right? So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are doing everything the right way. What if we just pretended like certain technology didn't exist? <laughs> what would that look like? <laughs> and that's what we ended up, you know, being like, oh, look, you can do it. You can still do it. And it's like, yeah, you could, but you shouldn't. Um, yeah, we did with the shows, though, just for the for the listener, where it was sort of along the basis of kind of like a almost a Saturday Night Live where we would have a guest host. Yeah who would come in and they were usually a comic and they would do like a, a little stand-up set at the beginning. Or we'd sometimes, did we ever, I think we did like a, like a cold open sketch sometimes with them. I'm trying well, to remember. Yeah. So I, well, I, I, yeah. Okay. So it didn't start that way. Um, so I'll try to make this brief, but the way it began is I was in a theater company um, as an actor and they had this spot of time open after their main show. And it was just like lingering time. And I was like, well, you already have an audience, right? For the show. What if we just did something fun afterward that was just kind of improvisational and whatever. So we came up with this idea to do like a, I think a 30 minute, maybe an hour long. I don't even know if it was an hour at the time, but people could just put up anything they wanted. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to read a poem, you could do it. If you, and people did. And if you wanted to do a stand up routine, you could do it. So we just, it was very loose. And I think somebody called it fries on the side. I don't remember who, but they said, it's kind of like the fries on the side of the main meal. And I right. was like, there's right. the name, there's the name. And so <laughs> that was that, that was that stupid. Like there was nothing clever <laughs> about how we came up with that name. And, um, and then we started doing it for a while that way. And I'm just a little bit of a, I don't know, perfectionist when it comes to, you know, it's like, if, if, if this isn't getting better over time, then I don't want to keep doing it. Like, I don't mm -hmm. just want to do something for no reason. So I think what happened is we had that format that was, there was, there's no director. There was no kind of staff of writers or anything like that. It was just do whatever you want. <laughs> and it's called right. fries on the side. <laughs> and um, I was like, that's not going to be enough for me. So I started to mold it a little bit, eventually started to let people direct their stuff and, we had writing submissions and we started to refine that. And then I started to realize there's no universe, there's sort of, there's no uniform kind of format or tone mm -hmm. to the show. So then I was like, well, somebody needs to direct the whole thing. And the obvious choice was just me. I didn't really want to do it, but I was like, well, I know the show enough. So I, I think I can figure this out. So I started directing the whole thing, which led to it just over time, it just con continually evolved and we just, kept things that worked and, you know, changed things that didn't. And I think by the time you got there, we probably had the format kind of down and, and yeah, I mean, we weren't exactly innovators. It was basically the format of SNL. Yeah. Which was fine <laughs> end, because it worked, you know, it worked. And we had a live music. We would do a lead in sketch that would open the show. And then we'd have the host come out and kind of the, exactly mm -hmm. the same as SNL. Yeah. <laughs> right? so. yeah. But we had, we had access to, you know, people that were, had some notoriety because we're in, in Hollywood or North Hollywood. Yeah. We were in a good location. Yeah. yeah. So we had some cool people. I mean, every yeah. time I watch succession, I remember, Hey, we had Alan Ruck do the show twice. That's right. 
<laughs> yeah, twice. 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 And, and we're, I think we're the only people to have gotten him to do a really good Ferris Bueller kind of parody. <laughs> That's right. Which was great. I don't know. Can we, are we, can we swear on this show? Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, he, we, the, the format of that sketch, I don't remember who wrote it, but basically it was Cameron and Ferris and Sloan all grown up and um, Cameron had married Sloan and, but clearly Sloan still was attracted to Ferris, right? So, <laughs> That's right. So Cameron basically was dealing with his marriage falling apart while his best friend Ferris kept, you know, sleeping with his wife. <laughs> and he, so he had developed this massive cocaine habit. And then, and we got him to wear the, the, the hockey, jersey. hockey jersey. Yeah. Got him to wear the jersey and he, he just went with it. He was, it was the most irreverent, <laughs> like dark comedy version of, Ferris, of the future of that, that threesome that you could imagine. <laughs> oh man, it's great. And I still have, you know, I only have like a part of that footage. I cannot, I never did find the complete copy, mm. but uh, I still have the super cut of like when we pitched it to Comedy Central. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and that was fun. Cause you know, eventually, you, you know, your connection to, to Dana, Dana yeah. Carver, we got him to kind of look at the show and we performed with him that one time in, the, in San Francisco, which was dream come true. That's right. Yeah. At the mill Valley. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, what happened, I think with fries, the, where it, where it was unique is that first of all, we, so SNL is like, Oh, we do it you know, we rehearse and we do all this stuff in a week. I'm like, we do it in about four hours. <laughs> so, I mean, it's yeah, a little it yeah. high wire ride. I mean, it's, it's just, it's terrifying because like very, almost no rehearsal. And then yeah. we got these famous people to come in like Tommy Davidson and um, Carlos uh, from Alas Ro Rocky. Alas Rocky. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Danny Woodburn. Yeah. Right? Glenn Morshower. And more shower and then Remember, and he would always do he would always do that, <laughs> that oh. character he would come out and do that character oh, tractor, boy. tractor boy <laughs> yeah and for anybody who knows who doesn't know who glenn Morshower is you can look him up but I'll, I'll tell you this he's the military he's the military guy <laughs> in every movie you've seen that always you know you never know who he is but you're like i've seen him play this yeah. part before <laughs> exactly just look him up on yeah. google images and you'll go oh that guy he's always the general and he's got this great voice and he's just a, he's a great guy too but yeah he would do the most offensive tractor boy <laughs> character that was just sorry glenn if you're listening uh but it was offensive <laughs> and um you know this is before our, our social sensibilities changed a bit yeah and, um but the good thing about the show was that I think we we had a, a great talent pool of people who were mm -hmm. in Groundlings and UCB in LA. I mean, we even had um, um, Flo from uh, Progressive. Oh yeah, she, that's right. Um, uh, Stephanie Courtney. Yeah. She hosted, I mean, you know, we just did a lot of really, I think, edgy, clever, irreverent things. And, and I think Dana's compliment was the best one I heard, which is he said, you know, that you guys have a beginning, a middle, and an end to your sketch sketches, mm -hmm. kind of like a flow. He's like, that he, that's something I always thought was missing from SNL. I'm like, well, that's a great point. I never thought of it that way, but 
Yeah. I mean, well, we that's one it. of the things, because we did have, uh, there was a, a long period where we had those writers meetings and the, that was the only thing that was really prepped was we would do the writing during the week and yeah. we had a writer meeting. And yeah. um, I mean, that was always a thing of mine was we, we've got to come up with decent endings because SNL, because to me, SNL was trying to be like Monty Python and my, Monty Python had hit on the idea that you don't have to have endings. Right. Because they, they just segue into the next thing. We said, well, we need endings. So it became kind of this thing. How does this thing end? How does it build? Where does it end? But see, if, you, if you're if you segueing, if you're like linking the sketches, right? Kind of like mm -hmm. Mr. Show yeah. or Monty Python, then you don't need to worry about the endings. Exactly. Because, because they're new beginnings. But SNL often do this thing where they're kind of, they're kind of building the sketch. They're building the, the comedic beats because it yes. has to get more and more ridiculous each time if you're going to build it. Right. So you build it. And then once it got to the peak, they would just be like, and then she left and then it lights out. Like, Wait, <laughs> then, hold on. Then go to Whoop. commercial. Yeah. You guys <laughs> had so much more opportunity there right. to kind of wrap it up, right? The closure it can be as funny as the, as the build. So yeah, that was, yeah. You started doing that as an offshoot of, of acting at the Sanford Meisner <laughs> Center. Right. So, so you came to it from acting, but did, was there an interest in comedy for you before you got into, uh, you know, turning it into it fries into a sketch show? Was there a, a, any sort of comedy interest? You know, it was, for me, it was all, I just always wanted to have fun doing anything that involved you know, acting, entertainment, whatever I was doing, I wanted it to be fun for me and and obviously for other people. And I, I guess I had a comedic sense um, or a timing that I understood. So, you know, Fry's evolved into sketch comedy because the sketch pieces were, or the comedy pieces were the ones that did the best. So I just, mm. I just cut the stuff that didn't work and we were left with sketch comedy. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't force it that way, you know? Yeah. I allowed it to just evolve as it was supposed to. I guess I was just kind of the editor of the content, but no, I mean, I, I didn't ever want to do stand-up. Right? To me, that would that just, I think it's a horrifying thing to do <laughs> to get up there and try to make people laugh one-on-one. -on -one. It's just, nope. And I hear all the stories from comics like, oh yeah, you, you know, you have a bomb night and it's, I'm like, it sounds horrible. I don't want that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I, I always preferred the, um, the collaborative, you know, process of putting together a sketch. And then, you know, comedy was just what I was better at. I think I was now, it wasn't an intent or an ambition. What drew you into, into, into acting in general? Oh man. Well, I was a super shy kid. And, you know, when I was about 16, somebody asked me to, you know, if I wanted to do this um, children's theater thing with them, and they were my friend and I just wanted to do it to hang out with my friend. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> and so we did this play horrible, like the director of the, the class wrote the play. I'm like, yeah, looking back, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a good sign, but, <laughs> um, but they wrote this play. And I remember um, we were perform on, on performance night, you know, the family, everybody comes down to see oh, what did they learn and uh, how good are they? And somebody had changed their costume uh, physically quite different on the night of the performance. So they, they came out dressed as Shakespeare. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good at, again, to the content of that, of that play because it was horrible, but he was dressed as Shakespeare as the time travel element to it and all kinds of, it was probably a sketch and the directors didn't know it. Um, <laughs> but 
he comes out and he had he had drawn these giant uh i don't know uh, mustaches on his face it looked ridiculous i turn around and i'm supposed to be on stage the whole time i got the lead in the thing so i'm supposed to be out there the whole time i look at him i start laughing and i can't and then i can't remember my lines at all it's the word it, i was never afraid of that because i memorized them but it's the thing that everybody says they're you know they're afraid of. of sure yeah and so um when I forgot my lines, I just started making them up. And <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the other actors were like, they just terrified. They didn't know what was happening. They kind of <laughs> went with it, but I, I was just went kind of with everything. And so afterward, the audience loved it. They thought it was hilarious. They thought it was all planned. And so I pulled it off. And then we went and hung out you know, with the whole cast and we talked our, about our stories and everything. So I was, I was hooked on the, the energy that you create and the, and the kind of friends you make going through a, a pretty scary process where you're, you're mm. on stage in front of an audience. That was the thing I loved. I didn't necessarily need personal validation as much as I just wanted to hang out with people that were interesting. And that was always where, I mean, actors were just interesting. Since rise i mean your your career is based more around technology yeah high technology computers pretty common people. mix if you think about it like actor <laughs> programmer these <laughs> things always go hand in hand as we know so but yeah that's right go on let's actually step back a little bit further where where did you get started where were you born where were you where'd you grow up yeah i was born in michigan um, family moved around a lot because my dad was chasing kind of career paths. So Michigan, Alabama, Tennessee, Alabama, again, continued in Alabama, then Charlotte, North Carolina. Then from there, I was in high school at the time. And I was like, I want to move. I, I wanted to get out of the small townish kind mm. of experience because I just didn't really have a, a great, um, impression of that experience at the time i've changed since then but i want so i knew i wanted to move to new york or los angeles and that acting experience with the children's theater had made me feel like i should try this right i mean mm. gotta try it but i started with tech way before that i mean my, that was my original passion and still is where i just would you know my parents would buy me a four thousand dollar computer and i would just take it apart <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, we, that's not why we bought it. I'm like, it's why I got it though. I, that's why I wanted it. <laughs> and um, so I was always into tech and programming and I was doing that well before acting, but then the acting thing kind of set off this other thing in my head. And I wanted to get out of the kind of Midwestern Southern experiences I'd had. So I knew I wanted to go to one of the big cities. I just chose the one that was easiest. They, my family had like friends in, gosh, what was the name of that little town? Uh, um, Huntington Beach. Oh, okay. Which now I know is not really Los Angeles, but at the time I was like, that's Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went out and stayed with them for two weeks to see what it was like. And then I called my mom, I think, I don't know, three or four days in. And I said, sell my car, ship my stuff. I'm going to stay. I, really? Yeah. It was the, it, looking back, I mean, I was just naive. It is not bravery or courage or anything. I was just naive. I didn't know how difficult that would be. <laughs> it smells like bravery though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, 
it's a fine line between stupidity and bravery, I think. But, and then I ended up in North Hollywood. Actually, my first apartment was like right across the street from where we ended up at the Meisner Center. Oh, funny. With fries, but it wasn't, the two had nothing to do with each other. They were separated by years, but yeah. So I moved and um, started to figure it out. And um, I wouldn't say it came easy, but you know, I did well, I did a lot of commercials and that that's all about being natural, being yourself and having comedic timing. So that reinforced a lot of, you know, what I was able to do with fries, I think, okay. but I always did tech at the same time. Like I always had like a full-time technology job. Yeah. And then on the side, I did these, you know, fries was pretty successful for what it was. Um, and then was there the, ever a point you were that you said, uh, you know, if something really kind of comes through, I, I'm ready, willing, and able to step away from this technology thing? Or was that always kind of the anchor that was like, it doesn't matter what comes up, I'm always going to be doing this? No. And it's, and I often try to figure this out. I, I don't really know how, I don't really know how this thought process evolved in me, but I never thought I had, I would ever have to choose. Hmm. And I never planned to choose between either of them. It was always like, well, I like doing programming and I like doing, you know, that kind of software development stuff. And I like doing something like fries or commercials or, you know, monk, which I was on a couple of times, right? Anything, whatever I could find. It was like, the, it was, if it was fun and I liked to do it, then I wanted to do it. Right. I never really felt like there was a, one was a backup for the other. I mean, I made more money in acting for at least three years in a row than I did in tech. And then it, kind of swapped hmm. you know so it went back and forth it wasn't like one was you know more of a goal yeah um but then at, at one point once once fries kind of went away uh you seem to focus yourself more on uh the technology side of things and and then uh, eventually i mean you moved out of los angeles mm -hmm. and uh what what led you away from sort of LA and staying involved in the show business side of things. Well, I, you know, I think as anybody I'm sure you've talked to before, who's been an actor in show business, it's, it's not the most rewarding or always fun experience. So even if you're doing pretty well, there's still a lot of bullshit that is not really that fun. And that's not really found in any other career mm -hmm. path, you know, Interesting. Um, yeah. driving around to like six auditions across you know, Los Angeles changing clothes in the car and then going for callbacks and like going in and everybody else looks different. I mean, there's all kinds of ego stuff that you have to face and just, you just feel like shit a lot of the times. So I was never, I was never one of those people who was like, I have to be an actor. It's my calling. God bless people who can, you know, feel that way. Yeah. I've never felt that way about anything. I just do the things that I like to do and, you know, hopefully. I make some money at the same time, but um, yeah, I mean, fries, fries continued for two years longer than I wanted it to because other people wanted it to go on. Mm. I drug my feet and it shows in the, in, in my opinion, in the last two seasons where yeah. I was just, like, I, I don't like any of those sketches because mm. I was into it, you know? And so maybe yeah. that's part of it, but I was just kind of getting done with this, the, the grind of, of the acting stuff yeah and um 
I never had any desires to be famous or recognized or anything like that. I, I didn't care about that. I just wanted to have fun. So, yeah. you know, it, like naturally what happened is a technology opportunity came up. I was like, well, this is great. They're paying what? Oh, that's great. And <laughs> it also was interesting work. So yeah, then I moved to San Diego and took that on and that company sold and it gave me some savings. And now, you know, I still do what I want, but I, I don't really have any desire to go back into anything entertainment wise. It's just maybe that was something that felt good at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of, you know, you get it through your system. I mean, I didn't, I didn't fail at it or anything, but yeah. I also didn't, you know, explode. I was just kind of one of those, you know, middle-class actors, you know, <laughs> you make enough to pay rent and buy a house maybe, but you're not like, you know, you didn't just finish Titanic and you're not going on a press tour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I like one person recognized me one time from fries in the side the day after we did the show. <laughs> and I was like, and I, I didn't like it. Like my girlfriend was, she was like, Oh, that was so cool. I was like, I don't, I don't like that. I, I, I don't want somebody pointing me out in public while I'm eating food. Ugh, that's horrible. You actually kind of moved back to where you started, right? I mean, you're living in Michigan now. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And you know, that that's been a whole big change. It, everything, I think everything, um, I mean, I'm pretty self-reflective. So I try to figure the same stuff out. I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I do this? What, you know, I don't know, whatever, but um Eventually, you know, you live in Los Angeles. Well, I was thinking I was there for like 21 years. And then in, in San Diego for four. And, you know, that's that's like 3,500 miles or 3,000 miles away from my family for all that time. Yeah. So that's like one or two trips a year for that long. And when COVID hit, um, I happened to be visiting my my family. So I stayed here. And then I was like, well, if I can stay here for six months while we're in this kind of lockdown-esque, you know, safety phase, then I can certainly live here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, and I was like, well, what am I getting from being back in Southern California? And, you know, some there's certainly friends that I uh, miss and that kind of thing. But, you know, for the most part, it was my own kind of life outside of my family's. And I just started going, you know, my family's getting older and I want to be near them more often and be able to just drive over and say hi. So I was like, all right. Plus, I mean, look, <laughs> the apartment I had in San Diego cost, I'm not going to get into details, but <laughs> it was 40%, <clears throat> excuse me, 40% more expensive to have an apartment in San Diego than it was for me to buy a three bedroom house on two and a half acres of land here in the state that I happen to be in, which I won't mention. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and when you, you get a dog and you're just like, you want some more space and you want privacy. You know, I love not being able to hear if my neighbors come home at 2am, you know, from the bar. Yeah. I need to know about it. I don't need to be woken up by somebody falling against my wall. (laughs) As much as you liked it. As much as I was like entertained by it. (laughs) I don't need it. You know, now they can fire guns in their backyard and I can't hear them because that's how far away I am. (laughs) (laughs) Which they do do. So of course they do. Of course. Trade off. For a 
portion of my life in Los Angeles, you represented a, a really interesting pursuit for me, because although I had certainly written sketches and things, uh, the discipline of putting on a weekly show mm. and everything that Fry's did, which was, uh, and, and, you know, be, being able to be part of a little bit of the formative part by saying, hey, why don't we do this on teleprompters yeah. and, and introduce that technology and then, and then continue to be, you know, invited to be part of it you know, because I, I came in with that and then I started writing for the show and I would get up and, and be in the sketches yep. uh, that represented this really interesting thing that I never anticipated when I moved to LA, I moved to LA to become a writer. Mm. And mm -hmm. so the idea that, although I'd been doing improv since, you know, 1983 and I, you know, I had a house group at the Santa Monica improv when it was there, but it was never like, I'm going to go to LA and, and be doing comedy per se my real aim was to write and so it was really this sort of nice way to kind of bring a lot of talents i had yeah. all to, in, into one pursuit and i always found you to be a, a really uh ins inspirational leader for people mm -hmm. that were finding their way into sketch comedy and the discipline of writing and then just that sort of madcap way of Hey, it's show day. People are showing up in the afternoon to get cast in stuff. We're going to do a tech rehearsal. Yeah. And then the scripts are on. And it was just this madness that was just, when you hear people, we've talked about Carvey's show, yeah. Fries on the Side, or um, uh, Fly on the Wall, mm -hmm. where they have all these SNL people. And that's what they talked about was just that, that crazy, intense yeah. thing. Yeah, they, they do talk about it. And, and every time... I mean, I'm not saying this is not comparing for the quality of the show or anything. I'm just saying in terms of the system that they're operating under, where they feel like it's crazy that they only have like four days to work on stuff. Yeah. It's just nothing like what we did is, is extraordinarily more, uh, look, the other, well, the other person we had a couple of times was Christopher Titus, who yes. yep. I was always a fan of, and he was great with the show too, because you know, I think I think one of the things that was exciting for the audience for Fries is that it it was so clearly put together in a short amount of time, and we were still able to do some amazing things with that format. That people in the audience were on the edge of their seat because they're like, "What is going to happen?" And they genuinely felt that. Yeah. Whereas when you watch SNL now. You don't really get that feeling of like anything could happen. This is right. It's there's no not as much risk. Right. Yeah, you might have somebody breaking here and there, but it's not like the old days when you know you you felt a little bit more of like there was a risk to what was happening, and the people that were playing in the in the sketches had to be more on their toes. Yes, and yeah. and that's an exciting vibe to set when you're experiencing anything i think uh, especially when it's comedy um yeah. now i'm not believe it or not i'm not a huge fan of improv just to go watch improv because it terrifies me right mm -hmm. I, especially now if it's if it's great improv it's a it's a, a ride and it's fantastic problem is it's very hard to get to that place with pure improv yeah there's just so many things that don't work and so I, that's why I liked having the written word to structure that a bit, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting. It's interesting how that all came together, but you brought, I think a level of grown upness 
and sophistication <laughs> to the show. So your sketches were very more, very much more story form. Mm. And I think, you know, when it came to some other writers, their sketches were a little bit like, but um bump and yours were like, let me tell you a story. And so what I remember doing a lot was kind of bringing both of those attitudes together more mm. where the bump bump had more of a build and an arc and an out. And then yeah. yours, we tried to find the hook a little bit more and go, how do we bump up the, the, the yes. joke, you know, to, to make it kind of sing. And the two, that's what was, I think, interesting about the show is that we had such a mix of, of people coming together. It wasn't like everybody was coming out of uh, the lampoons. Right. With right. Sketch writing like credits. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was always, yeah. And then the creative element of having that writer's meeting. Cause I remember stuff would come out of it. Like uh, I distinctly okay. remember the, the narrator sketch that started out as this sketch that just kind of was like, I'm not sure what this is. And then we, it just turned out that the, we had a guy narrate all of the action. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and he would do this thing freeze and he, and all the actors would freeze. And then he would narrate the thoughts of the actors on the page it looks like the least funny thing you could imagine. Yes. But when we did it in rehearsal, and I don't remember why it got to rehearsal, to be honest, because why would it, right? It just didn't look like anything. So, but we did it and we had an actor, um, Christopher Pauly, who just happened to bring a characterization to that, that role that was very perfect and unique. Yeah. And it, it somehow became, once he froze all the actors, the actors would end up end up staring at each other in that frozen moment, which makes it very hard not to break because you're yeah. just staring at somebody in the eye and you're listening to this ridiculous shit go on in the background. <laughs> so then we'd have these breaks and stuff and um, it just worked somehow. And it came, we kept bringing it back. I'll tell you yeah. one of my pet peeves though, oh, man, and you, I don't know. You can see this in SNL too, with hosts mostly, not really the actors. But when somebody realizes that breaking is its own form of getting a laugh, oh yeah, they'll lean into it, and they'll it almost like fake break or yeah, you know. And I'm like, oh, I would just there's part of me that just wants to make the person never come back to the show. <laughs> like, look, if you're gonna try to manipulate, no, yeah, I, yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. It was like watching uh, Harvey Corman on the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't look, you have to fight against the breaking. That's what makes it funny. Yes. And genuinely, if you're going to break and you think it's also funny, you're going to fuck up the breaking. I mean, it's just, right. it's, yeah. it's not that it works. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like somebody in a movie. Um, like Brando once said, he's like, what makes people cry? What makes the audience cry? is the fact that the actor is trying not to. And I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. If you have an actor who's leaning into crying and being tearful and emotional because it's an emotional scene, no, you'll look at the audience. They'll be sitting there going that, that on paper, that looks sad. Yeah. That's what they're <laughs> going to think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you have somebody fighting back tears and you know that you want them to cry, then what Brando was saying is the audience should cry for you. And Interesting, like, and same with comedy. the 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 audience should laugh for you because you're not allowed to. 
Well, maybe something to get out on because uh, you do have a Brando story. I do. Mentioning, do. mentioning Brando. Do we have time to get into that? I don't know how long your shows are. Uh, my shows are as long as I need them to be. Oh, or okay. Unless the network sits on my neck, then I go, oh, wait, we're not with part of a network. Never mind. That's right. So this is going to raise more questions for your audience than it answers. <laughs> but um, it's an extraordinary story. You can look this up online. And I think you can find references to it. You won't find many. But the refer the name of the project was Lying for a Living. If you look up Lying for a Living, Marlon Brando, you should be able to find something about it. I think there's like a Hollywood hmm. reporter story on it or whatever. But um, here's what happened. So <clears throat> I don't remember what year this was. Um, it was a long time ago. It was before Fries. So hmm. that's how long. Um, but my my acting teacher at the time was good friends with Edward James almost. And he, he calls me on a Sunday. He says, Shane, can you can you uh, can you come to this project tomorrow? I can't tell you what it is. I was like, no, I have to work. He goes, where do you work? I said, you know, restaurant at the time. And um, this is a long time ago. <laughs> and so he was like, can you quit? I was like, Martin, come on. I can't just quit my job. What is this thing? And he's like, I can't tell you, but you should quit your job. I was like, really? Wow. I mean, this is the, and, and you imagine how weird that is to hear. I mean, it, you just have to think it's extraordinary, but you don't know what it is and he can't tell you. And you're like, do I quit my job? So I, I swung it by just taking the day off, calling in sick. And I was like, well, I don't have to quit for that, but um, we'll see. So I show up at this location in Hollywood. I couldn't even pinpoint the location today if I needed to, but showed up in this location, um, security guards at the door. He says, I need to take your Polaroid and you get your information, scan your ID. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so, so finally, I, you know, I roll with it. I'm like, well, I trust Marty. He's, you know, always been good to me. So let's see. So I went through the process, go inside, walk into a soundstage. And there's a bunch of like folding chairs kind of set up facing a raised stage. The stage is probably, I don't know, two and a half feet off the ground. On the raised stage, there's a chair, giant chair. And in the chair is this giant heavy person with kind of like a moo-moo smock on. <laughs> All right. And on the person's head is like clearly a wig, makeup, lipstick, and all this stuff. And the person uh, in the chair is speaking with a British accent. And I'm like, what the fuck did I call in sick for? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> this can't be top secret because I've seen this kind of thing before. Uh, and it's just, it's indifferent. It's not in the soundstage, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so as we walk in <clears throat> and a couple friends of mine had also been invited to this is very exclusive. It was only like 25 people there all these cameras set up too. And as I hear this person talk more and I look at them more, I'm like, I turn to my friend and I go, that's Marlon Brando. And he's like, no, I go, it hundred percent is Marlon Brando. So Marlon Brando is sitting in this chair with this giant smock <laughs> on. He's a heavy person at this point. And he's got makeup on. He's speaking in a terribly, terrible British accent. And I'm just like, what's happening? <laughs> So 
<laughs> we basically got the brief um, after that initial introduction where we were told that Marlon Brando wants to explore acting. And I'm like, what do you mean explore acting? He's like, he wants to understand why people do it, how it works, how to do it well. So this is a kind of a documentary kind of class oriented project that he's created called Lying for a Living. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and then why is, but why is he, <laughs> they're like, don't worry, you'll figure it out. I was like, yeah, okay. So we go in, we take our seats. He does this kind of introduction, explains that he's experimenting with characters. I'm like, mm, I don't know if that's really what a character is, but I mean, yes, technically a bit more of a sketch comedy thing, but let's see. So <laughs> we eventually find out that he's running this sort of, I don't know, project school class open forum. It's almost like actor's studio meets, you know, the circus. <laughs> and, and so what he's doing basically the, uh, to kind of, make the story a little shorter what he's doing is he's inviting these huge famous sort of actors from hollywood in with these quote-unquote average people um mm -hmm. and they wanted they they had a problem with the previous i guess group of people that were there they needed actors who could be trusted to keep a secret and had mm -hmm. some level of talent so that's why there was a limited number of people mm -hmm. there i probably didn't belong there at the time but <laughs> Either way, I'm fortunate enough to be there, and just wait till you go, wait till you hear the, how this story culminates. It's it's un, unreal. Um, so as we're there, we were there. We worked. We went there. So, long story short, um, at the end of that day, I called my job the next day and I said I quit. Really? Yeah, because they said you need to come back here every day. For you know, they were planning. I think twelve weeks. I was like, 100%, 100%, I'm going to come back every day and hang out with Brando. I mean, yeah, I don't need to work at Applebee's. I'll work, you know? So, so I um, quit my job, kept coming back. And the format was Brando would invite people. So the people that I saw there, and apparently before me, there was DiCaprio had showed up and some other people. But when I was there, um, Whoopi Goldberg came, uh, Sean Penn, Robin Williams, who we should get into that a little bit. Um, John Lovitz. Uh, gosh, I'm probably going to blank on the others. Oh, Thomas Jane. Mm. I don't know if I should even talk about that experience because I did not enjoy <laughs> that guy. But I don't yeah. want to be that person who divulges those secrets. So that story is maybe for you and I, but, um, and then the last one was Michael Jackson. Huh? Yeah. Michael Jackson showed up at the end. So anyway, the format, the way it works, is Brando set up on this stage with this microphone in his face and he talked pontific pontificated about acting and invited these famous people in with these, you know, kind of average people, actors, and some non-actors. And then he basically told people, get up and do anything you want and we'll all talk about it. And I was like, this is both terrifying and liberating at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when we were there that first day, I don't remember exactly what we did, but um, 
eventually Whoopi Goldberg came and he would kind of yield the floor to the person who was there that was famous to like let them kind of run the day. Hmm. And so she had some, like she was one of the most profound people that commented on people's work and and other things. But um and would you be getting would you be getting up and doing things in these things or are you just in the audience? Oh, hundred percent. No, everybody was allowed to get up and do whatever they wanted. And I was and I was terrified, but I also knew that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't get up and do just whatever. Yeah. So I got up and did a few things. Um, one one thing I did, which was I can't remember who came up with it. Um, one of the female actresses who I, I don't know, but she had John Lovitz and me play opposite sides in a in like a court case. I was the I think defense attorney and John Lovitz was the prosecutor. And she put together this scenario and then we just improvised the scene. And Brando played the judge. Okay. And so we had this cross-examination and I was like, I'm just going to wing it with legal terms. I don't know. It's like objection. I don't know why, Um, you know, but we, we did the best we could. I mean, we took it seriously. We weren't, we weren't just fucking around. It was like Brando's sitting there. So we did our best. And, um, And the best compliment Brando gave me um, was that he was like, this, this young man here, I believe he's an attorney. And then it was a good compliment, right? Yeah. After all that. But also I knew what I had done and not done. And so I was like, hmm. So I don't know if I can trust Brando's judgment from here on out. Right. <laughs> that was genuinely my thought. And we were there out of the 12 proposed weeks we were there for at least six maybe eight um every every day five days a week wow we were there and we were doing this routine where people could just you know like let's say you came in and you said you know i want to do a scene where um a father and a daughter are working out some kind of relationship issue you would pull together a few actors give them the crux of the scenario and then you would stand up tell the crux to the group and then you would play it out and then brando would talk about it afterward and Hmm. say what he liked and didn't like and i almost never agreed with his assessments (laughs) but it was it was helpful to me because i realized oh okay we all just are people and we have opinions just because he's brando doesn't mean you know he's got he's cornered the correctness of of this kind of stuff yeah yeah Cause he thought acting was lying and I never looked at it that way. He used to go, you're faking it. You're lying. You're bullshitting people. And I always thought it was like finding some truth in a scenario that you could relate to and trying to play that out. Mm. But he thought it was lying. And so you know, different, different take, but nobody can doubt how well he did with a- a- his lying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and then when uh, when Robin Williams came, he was there for probably, I want to say four or five days straight. And it was, um, the enlightening thing about that was, first of all, incredibly gracious person, just yeah. in person. When the cameras are cut, right, we had lunch and that kind of thing. And he was just so friendly to people. He would get on the phone or if somebody was on the phone and he overheard them saying, yeah, Robin Williams is here. He'd go, Hey, who is that? Can I talk to him? 
and he would go on, and he would do his you know routine where he was just on yeah and uh people just loved him and um there was this there was this one scene that i did and i came in and i played this sort of flamboyant character who was kind of over the top and i played it like high risk i mean this is like fry's high risk you know yeah let me go for it and see if i can get a laugh because it was an absurd scenario and he gave me a compliment and i was like there we go i'm good <laughs> you know that's a good one um he was like that's this guy's funny that's and great so, yeah and but he was he was yeah he was fantastic and he had a lot of insightful things to say god there's so many stories about this obviously there's 10 12 weeks of this i don't i don't know yeah. so we're coming up to the close prior to the holidays and i guess we're losing the space um the production company who was run by edward james almost was saying we're going to lose this space we need another space and they actually considered the Meisner Center in North Hollywood. Oh, funny. As a replacement. I was like, I don't know if that's going to fit. It's a small <laughs> theater. I don't know how you would do it there, but okay. Um, but they were trying to break and they were trying to come up with a new location. And so we come in, it's like one of the last days before the holly, uh, holiday break. We come in, same friend, right? Who I told that's Brando. Come in, see this in the front of the room all these chairs, there's a red polo kind of velvet, almost like a corduroy red polo shirt, mm -hmm. a hairnet, and then a baseball cap. And I'm like, that's a weird outfit, even from the back, you know, it's like, <laughs> nobody, nobody can really pull that off. Um, and we walk in, and I hear that person and Brando talking. And I turn to my friend, and I go, that's Michael Jackson. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's a hundred percent Michael Jackson. And it's just, and it's kind of, you know, once your mind gets blown in these circumstances, a couple of times you start to get a little bit used to it. So yeah. you don't, you don't freak out as much. And I was like, okay. And so then Brando announces, all right, we're going to go on break. And when we come back, Michael's going to let us pick up at the Neverland ranch. <laughs> and I turned to my friend and I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> world am i in right this doesn't make any sense oh my god is bubbles gonna be there i have so many <laughs> questions you know <laughs> wow yeah wow and Wild. so so we broke for the holidays thinking and they and they went through all the logistics when you come to neverland you're going to drive up you'll park in a they'll Lock. take you up to the house with these carts and i'm just sitting there going this i I can't, I'm not allowed to talk to anybody about this. Of course, I told my family. Yeah. They didn't even, they were like, come on now. You're making, <laughs> right. This is not real. I was like, I agree. I'm not even sure it's real. I may have taken something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that's how they broke for the holidays. And then about a week into the holidays, we got um, a notice from the production company saying, Brando, look at some of the footage. He fucking hated it. It's never going to see the light of day. You don't have to wow. come back to Michael Jackson's ranch. I was like, fuck. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they had like nine cameras running on wow. every day from all angles for everywhere. They were trying to do kind of like, I think a mix between reality and, and documentary. Um, and the was, this 
was this before video capture? So this is all going on tape or something? Well, I don't know if they used cassettes or if they had digital, but it was um, it was probably those little cartridges. Oh, yeah. Get what they're called. I mean, we filmed some of fries on that. So it wasn't pure digital. No, it was probably like those mini tapes, mini cassettes. Yeah. But they probably, I mean, they must have come up with, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand of those things. Now. Wow. Wonder where that I mean, it's just footage, so wonder where that footage, footage ended, wonder where that ended up, or if they just destroyed okay. it. Well, that's the next part, right? So oh. I always wondered that. And a friend of mine, um, I don't know if I should mention people's names. I'll just I'll just not, just in case. But sure. a friend of mine knew Edward James almost pretty well and was working with him on this project. And I was like, oh, I, I know Eddie as well, his son and all this stuff with the Brando thing. And so I was like, can you just, just ask him? Cause, cause Eddie was a big part of the second phase of that production. And I said, just ask Eddie if he knows what happened to the footage, you know? And so my friend asked him and he comes back and he says, Eddie says, <laughs> Eddie says, Brando demanded it all be destroyed and specifically to be burnt in some kind of like fire. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't just want it destroyed. He wanted it like burnt where he could see it apparently, but oh, he wow. passed away before oh. I guess that could, could happen. And um, like one of my ideas at one point was to do a, a documentary and basically interview Eddie and, you know, all the people who showed up yeah. Sean Penn, and talk to them about the experience kind of get the story out because nobody knows about this like almost yeah. nobody knows about this yeah yeah and it was his last project before he passed away oh wow no kidding it's a it's a fascinating story to me even if you never found the footage i know of enough of the people who were there who are still working in the business to where you could go well i mean john lovitz right yeah yeah I mean, you could ask him he was there and then yeah. Robin, I mean, he was there. You can't obviously um, pursue that, but um, Sean Penn was there. There were several actors who were like TV actors. I could look their name up. If I Interesting. Knew. That's Whoopi fascinating. Goldberg. I'm sure she'd be sure. talking about sure. it. Sure. That's fascinating. She was so cool. I know. Wow. If only you'd come back to Hollywood, Shane, and just kind of put that project together. I think, well, I think, you'd, I think you'd be back. <laughs> and that's what I long for. I just want to be back. Well, Shane, thanks so much for talking to us. Fascinating just to kind of hear sort of your beginnings and then just your insight into uh, into the, the business from the perspective of someone who said, yeah, I enjoyed doing what I was doing, but it wasn't something I had to had to pursue, had to stay in, had to become either had to become the success or flame out or something. And you just said, no, I moved on to the next thing that was, you know, interesting and that sort of thing. I mean, it was a pleasure talking to you. I, I love talking to you always. So I appreciate you having me on. Sure. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll follow up on those conversations another time. Great. And I'm sure this, this episode will be in like the best of or something in the future. Of course. Of course it will. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Shane. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. I want to thank Shane Elliott for jumping in here at the tail end of our 11th year in the soundcasting game. You can follow Shane on Twitter at Shane Elliott. That's S-H-A-N-E. 
underscore E-L-L-I-O-T-T. You can also see a few of the old Fries on the Side videos up on YouTube at youtube.com slash Fries on the Side, one word. We're going along with this week's episode, but it's also been a few weeks since we've dredged through the tweet sack, right Tweety, and read off the handles of the folks kind enough to give our handle, at Succotash Show, a shout out on their socials. Oh yeah, by the way, this music bed you're hearing is courtesy of my friend Rick Schrader. Isn't that cool? Here we go. The D-Head Factor, Dave in the Cave, Dr. London Smith, The Jock Talk Podcast, Stuart Buckley, Milt Abel, That Jordan Brady, Jill Lamb, Podcast Solutions, Michelle O'Murth, I Shake My Head with Lisa and Sam, Salty Language Podcast, Married Crazy and Podcasting, Pittsburgh Ned Podcast, and Lee Overtree. And just like that, we're out of here. Check back in next week for episode 351 with Tyson Saner back in the driver's seat. And remember, our 12th anniversary show is destined to drop at Tuesday, April 25th. Easter's coming up this weekend, so if you're just sitting around stuffing your face and someone asks if you heard anything good lately, won't you please pass the succotash? You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast with your host, Mark Hershaw. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Rate us and review us at Apple and Google Podcasts. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com. On Spotify. On Stitcher. On iHeartRadio. On YouTube. On SoundCloud. And wherever fine soundcasts are streamed and or downloaded. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Suckatash Show. Like us on Facebook. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com or call into the Suckatash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at hightail.com slash you slash Suckatash. Suckatash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Suckatash is executive produced by Mark Hershon. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Suckatash goodbye.